Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Troy Taylor with us. Troy is a great researcher and author, of course. Troy, did you find a couple witnesses to the 1949 exorcism? I did. Um, when I first started researching this, it was in the late 90s, I guess. And I was living in the St. Louis area. And I just got curious about the whole thing because I, you know, I'd heard that the movie, I'd seen the movie when I was like 11. So, I, you know, I was familiar with it. But yeah. then living down there, I kept hearing about how it was based on a true story. And I was really curious about it, started digging into it. And at that point, there were still uh, several people still alive who had been involved, uh, including uh, who fa- Father Walter Halloran. He had been a seminary student at the time that the exorcism had taken place, and he was a former football player, and Father Bowden had brought him in to help with the exorcism to hold Roland onto the bed because, you know, the violence involved. Oh, my God, yeah. Five or six people to hold him down. Superhuman strength, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, at one point, Father Halloran said that Roland had broken his nose. Uh, He'd hit him so hard. Uh, there were other times when, you know, they couldn't hold him down. He said that he, you know, filled in a lot of blanks for me. He said that he uh, saw Roland able to, like, spit like a thick mucus all the way across the room, uh, eight or ten feet away with his eyes closed and hit people in the face and hit him on target every time. Um, he said that he saw the bed lift up off the floor a few inches, that he couldn't explain, and he talked about the smells and that kind of thing. But probably the and you know when he passed away in 2006 i assumed he was the last living witness to everything and then a few years ago i was contacted by the family of a uh, alexian monk uh who had been an, a nurse at the alexian brothers hospital in south st louis where the exorcism had finally concluded and great. he had been retired many years he was in his late 80s his health was very poor he had cancer and he knew he was dying and had never told the story because, you know, they'd been asked to keep it quiet. But he wanted to talk about the exorcism because he felt like it was something that he needed to tell his story before he died. So I went up to Milwaukee to interview him. And um, that was probably, well, no, not probably. It was the most compelling interview of any that I've ever done, bar none. I mean, not this, not just this case, but any. Um, and he told me about the things that he saw when he was there, including the fact that he was holding Roland down onto the bed one evening during an exorcism. And he swore to me that he said the boy levitated above the bed. Oh, geez. About 12 inches. Now, the, bo- the boy, too, would be about 85 right about now if he's still alive, right? Right. Well, and, and he's not. He actually passed away last year. He did. Did you ever yeah. get a chance to meet him or anything like that? I didn't meet him. I had a phone interview with him uh, about 10 years ago or so. Um, and his, you know, he he told me that I would be disappointed <laughs> when, when we had the interview. But he told me that he just didn't remember the events of the exorcism. I mean, he remembered traveling to St. Louis. Of course, his you know, relatives were there. He remembered all of that. But he couldn't remember anything that took place during the actual exorcism. He said people would tell him about things that he'd done or things that had happened, and he said it was like listening to the describe someone else's life because he just couldn't remember any of it. Did he ever have any events after the fact, Troy? 
No, he didn't. Um, and that's that's the thing about this. You know, anytime anybody wants to say that it was a hoax or he was mentally ill or something, it doesn't explain how he was somehow miraculously cured of all the things they think he might have had. Um, you know, at the end of April in 1949, when the exorcism ended, he went home and went on to live a very good life, a very full life. He graduated school and college. He got married, had a family, went to work in the space industry. Um, he actually still to this day has a patent in his name for shielding used on rockets so that they don't burn up in our atmosphere. I mean, he invented that. Uh, this He went on to brilliant, a brilliant life. I guess you're not at liberty to tell us who he was, huh? Well, I, I promised I wouldn't. And how, he how, hasn't how, how, about a, how about a first name? How about just a real first name? Well, I, his, his real first name was Ronald. Ronald. Which okay. is where the Robbie and Roland and that kind of thing okay. comes from. All right. Uh, he, because it was close. And he would have family, like you said. He has offspring that, that are around. I wonder yeah. if they have any issues. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. I mean, but I, I, I don't know for a fact on that. I mean, he never mentioned it, anything like that. You know, but I, I had only talked to him about ten years ago, so it had been a little while. Troy, you've covered a lot of stories, a lot of hauntings. What does your gut tell you about this case? Well, my gut tells me that something definitely happened. I, you know, I don't believe that it was mental illness. I don't believe it was a hoax. Um, I think there was something paranormal and even supernatural involved in this case. Um, I, I don't. As far as what, you know, how we want to define demons, I think everybody has their own opinion on that. And I don't think that my definition of it would match the Catholic Church's definition or probably, you know, any most of the people that are listening to this. You know, I, I just think that they are, you know, we're, is something, a, a physical presence of some kind inhabited this boy and caused these things to happen. I don't think it was his fault. Um, I don't know why he was chosen to be possessed, for lack of a better word. Um, I just, I, but I do think something happened. I do think it's for real. Um, I didn't always think that. I went into this skeptically at the beginning, and I've always tried to be objective about it. But, you know, when more and more and more stuff piles up and you spend 25 years, you know, keep digging back into the story, after a while you've got to have an opinion. And my opinion is, is that something truly unexplainable happened. Troy, did you ever hear this? Because I was told that when they demolished the Alexian Brothers Hospital and sold off the furniture, the bed, the credenzas, for all the rooms, that the room where the exorcist took place, the people who bought that furniture felt that they were haunted and they got rid of it. Did you hear anything well, like that? There, yeah, you know, there are a few versions of that story. Um, you know, and it, and it sounds like an urban legend to say that the room where the exorcism took place was sealed off when it was over. But that actually is true. Mm -hmm. um, all the furniture was left in the room. A copy of the priest's diary was left in the desk, and it was sealed off, and it was never opened again. But then when they went to tear down the old wing of the Alexian Brothers Hospital and replace it with the new building that's there now, when they were doing this work in 1978, they you know, broke into the room. And that was just a construction company that was emptying things out. And there are, as I said, a couple of versions of the story. My favorite one, my favorite one was told to me by a guy um, who I interviewed. He had contacted me after I was on you know, some program and he, uh, 
he told me that he had been a mover, uh, worked for a moving company, and he was asked to come to a rectory in St. Louis. They were getting ready to close that rectory, combine it with another one. And he was taken down into the basement. One of the priests who was there, who refused to go in the room, told him that they needed to take out a bed, a dresser, a desk, and a nightstand out of the room because it had been in the exorcist room at the hospital. And they were supposed to take it to a storage facility that was across the uh, from the main gates of Scott Air Force Base over by Belleville, Illinois. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that he was told to take it there. And that, you know, the priest refused to come into the room. They were all terrified of it. They didn't want anything to do with it. And he, he swears to me that the furniture from the room is still sitting in that storage facility. That's interesting. Now, I don't know. And I've heard the story that you mentioned, too. There are people who say that they had it and they, you know, were haunted by it. There was also a story that said it was put into the attic of a nursing home not far from the hospital and that no one would go into the attic of the nursing home. So it's hard to say where it went. Uh, there are a lot of stories, and I've never been able to nail down exactly which one is absolutely true. Well, the Catholic Church takes exorcisms very seriously. They've got a whole staff in the Vatican devoted to it. They train priests about it. Do other religions do this too, or is it just the Catholic Church? Well, the Catholic Church is the one has really become famous for it in the you know in the Western world. I think that every faith has something like this, uh, something to do with possessions and removing you know spirits from a person's body. I I know that it's part of. Native American lore. Um, I know that is uh, part of African lore. Uh, I'm sure South America probably has something. I think it's a worldwide thing. I think there has been a belief in these kinds of spirits that can inhabit people's bodies since, I'd say, the beginning of recorded time, if not before. Uh, there have always been stories of these beings, uh, whether you call them angels or demons or old gods or whatever you want to call them, they've been around. And it's just that the Catholics have become really famous for it. And, uh, you know, these days, if you talk about something like that, usually they will steer you toward the Catholics uh, because they seem to have a, I don't know, uh, a more of a ritual, a better handle on it, I suppose. Of everything that you've investigated beyond the exorcism case, what else has really captured your imagination and attention? Well, I, oh gosh, I dig into so many things and just whatever kind of sparks my fancy. And I've always been, I mean, American Hauntings was kind of founded on the idea of, you know, uh, the, the rise of the spirit world, as you mentioned at the very beginning. So I've always been fascinated with spiritualism and how it got started in the 1840s and the effect that it's had on American history. And that comes in, in many different forms. Um, I've always been, growing up in central Illinois, I've always been you know, almost obsessed with Abraham Lincoln and his connection to the spirit world. And I've been always fascinated with the Bell Witch of Tennessee, you know, with really an original American ghost story. So, I mean, you really, it'd be hard to name something, <laughs> you know, uh, the Limp family in St. Louis. It'd be hard to name something I haven't become obsessed over at some point or another over the last 25 years or so. Well, it's amazing. Uh, now, you do a lot of tours, but I guess COVID has slowed that down for a little bit, huh? Yeah, it did. Um, you know, we did some outdoor things, um, you know, in the fall, and which was nice. And in the wintertime, 
we, we, we take people to a lot of different places all over the Midwest, and um, our groups are usually small enough so that people can actually go and, you know, have an experience, you know, have a ghost hunt. We don't do, like, meet and greets and things. It's a really to take them there so they can experience something. And those groups are usually pretty small that we can pretty easily do that without, you know, people walking all over each other. And everybody just puts a mask on, and we haven't had any issues, thankfully. Well, that's good. It's amazing work that you've done. Why do people love haunted stories? They just like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we can. Uh, I think we all know people love to be love to be unnerved. They, you know, they love to be scared. Nobody wants to be terrified. You know, <laughs> you know, we don't want to. We don't really want to run screaming out of somewhere. But people do love to be unnerved and creeped out by things, and I think that's part of it. I think the obsession that everybody has with ghosts it has to do with the fact that we all hope there's something after this life you know whether it be you know going on to uh, another plane or you know in some cases some people maybe just want to stay around you know and i think that if there could be proof or, or at least you know people can be convinced that there's you know ghosts hanging around spirits lingering in a place that that gives them some hope that you know there is a there is another life after this one i think those two things sort of combine but you know we get a lot of people who just want to have an experience they want something to be real you know they they want they hear all the stories they read the stories you know they hear about what other people have experienced and they want that for themselves and then Sometimes they regret it later on, but for the most part, I think people just want to have an experience. Well, you mentioned the Lemp Mansion, and uh, you know the folks who aren't that familiar with St. Louis. St. Louis is a beer capital. We've got Anheuser Busch here, and then years ago we had Lemp Brewery, L-E-M-P, and I was told Troy that at least three suicides were done at the Lemp Mansion. And did you hear that? Yeah, that is true. Um, William Lemp, who was the son of the brewery's founder, um, and then later the company was named after him, he, uh, he committed suicide there in 1904. Um, his son, uh, who was going to be the one that took over the company, Frederick, had died a few years earlier, and he'd gone into a depression, just started to come out of it. And then his best friend, who was Frederick Pabst of the Pabst, Pabst Brewery, that's Milwaukee, right. right. He, he died, and I guess that was all William could take, and he committed suicide there. Um, later on, his son, his son, William Jr., Billy, would commit suicide there in 1922, and then his son Charles would commit suicide there in, in, uh, in, the, in the late 40s. So uh, there were three suicides, and then there was the daughter, Elsa, who is believed to have committed suicide, but I think there's a lot of... And that's, again, one of those things I've been obsessed about over the years. But there's a lot of evidence to show that she may not have committed suicide, that she might have been murdered. But oh, even so, that's four members of the immediate family who died within a couple of decades of each other. And um, it, it, it kind of puts a dark spin on that house. I mean, it's a beautiful house. The mansion is still there. Well, the brewery's still there. It just hasn't been a brewery since the 1920s. Well, and the house is used for Halloween now. People go in right. there during Halloween. Right, right. I mean, you can go there and have dinner. You can go there and stay the night if you want. They use it as an, a restaurant in an inn. 
food's great. Overnight stays great as long as you don't get, you know, wakened, you know, wakened by a ghost in the middle of the night, I suppose. But um, it is regarded, I, I believe, one of the most haunted places in the country. I've lost count of how many times I've been there, spent the night, stayed there, and, you know, have even had a, some minor experiences, nothing. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychic. I don't see dead people. It's, it's me going to places, you know, being like, as I mentioned, other people wanting to have an experience. And, uh, you know, there have been a few times when I've had some things, minor things happen there, footsteps on the stairs, you know, doors open and closed, that kind of thing. But creepy uh, things. I do think it's, I do think it's uh, an active spot. Have you ever been scared on an event? Oh, yeah. Well, not always on the events, because if I'm at an event, I'm usually got my mind on making sure that the people who are there have had a good time. But, yeah, I've been plenty of times I've been scared, you know, on my own, you know, going to check out a place or experience it. Um, The first time, well, in fact, the only time I've ever actually seen a ghost was at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium in Kentucky. And I was there, gosh, Oh, gosh, almost 20 years ago now. Um, and they hadn't opened to the public yet, but a buddy of mine had an in with the owners and they were, he was doing a lot of the help cleaning the place up and things. So he, uh, he took me on a private tour one night, just he and I in the building. And we were walking down a hallway on the fourth floor and we're just strolling along, chatting as we're walking through the hall. And a man walked out of the doorway on the left-hand side of the hallway and just walked straight across, never looked at us, went into the doorway on the right-hand side. And um, I had a I, – I think I probably came the closest I've ever had to a heart attack. Whoa. And I, I didn't assume it was a ghost. I really thought it was – it just looked completely solid. I thought it was a guy who had just broken into the building or something. And, you know, my, my buddy said, oh, man, we got to get this guy out of here, you know. So we walked down to the doorway. We walked inside to tell him he asked to leave. The room is empty, and there's no other door. And I realized that I had just seen a ghost, and I said to my buddy, I said, okay, well, I think our tour's over tonight. So that was enough for me. But, That's freaky. You know. Yeah, it was freaky, all right. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.